So before beginning this episode, I have a few things to say. This entire episode is a story about a client who was mistreated by her therapist and how she managed to get his license revoked. It's a complicated story with a lot of twists and turns. The client is a patron by the name of Maite. It's spelled M-A-Y-T-E with an apostrophe. She, she gave me, not apostrophe, accent. She gave me permission to tell her story in this episode. She told me that she wanted her name to be read on the podcast. She wants to stand tall and be proud of what happened. She doesn't want to hide anymore. She knows that she has nothing to be ashamed of. It's the therapist who has something to be ashamed of. And I highly commend her for allowing us to tell her story as a, as a client underneath this uh, unethical therapist. She wants to raise awareness of the way therapists mistreat their clients. She wants to raise awareness about the complaint process. She wants her story to be a warning to therapists and a warning to clients, incidentally. She wants therapists to stop mistreating their clients and she wants the mistreated clients in the world to know that they have the power to seek justice. In this episode, I'm going to tell her story. I'm going to read his progress notes, actually, because I have access to that. I have his progress notes because Maite sent them to me. I'm also going to read her account of what happened. I'm going to review the ethical codes and the guidelines regarding using touch in therapy, because that's the issue, is that he was touching her. I'm going to review other ethical codes involved in this case. I'm also going to talk about the complaint process that she went through. And I'm going to talk about what the state decided to do to the therapist. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a licensed therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you go there, you'll get access to this episode along with hundreds of other patron-exclusive episodes. If, if I'm reading it right, this episode is going to be two or three hours long. And so uh, if you're interested in getting bang for your buck, I think you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck in this instance. So go to patreon.com and, and become a patron and get access to this full episode. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support, including petfinder.com. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Love you so much. All right. Let's just get into this. My t- I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. I've only been communicating with her over email uh, for the most part. And so uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but I think it's Maite. Maite. I'm sure my accent is bad, but uh, I, I apologize to Maite if I'm not pronouncing her name right. She said that she went to therapy, this would have been a couple years ago, because she wanted to talk about her career and a difficult breakup that she went through recently at the time. Incidentally, I checked the therapist's documents on his website, and it said that he is a doctoral-level mental health professional and he's licensed to practice in his state in the United States. All right, so in the first two sessions, I'm pulling information from his progress notes and from her account of of what happened. She sent me a written account of what, what happened. So according to her account, she felt as though he really cared about her. He She really liked him as a therapist initially. 
because he made her feel better by telling her nice things about her personality and by being very warm with her. But he also said, according to her account, that he, he also said that she was very sensual, quote-unquote, very sensual. This is a very strange thing for a therapist to say, very sensual. And she also said that he got flirtatious with her. She, you know, she said she got a very flirtatious vibe from him, but she couldn't identify any particular behaviors in these early sessions. And so she thought, well, maybe it's just me in my head. In his progress notes, he doesn't mention that he said this. In his, in his progress notes, he wrote about her presenting problems, and he also wrote about some nonspecific impressions that he had about her. There, in, his, in his notes, in his, in his file, there's no formal assessment. There's no formal treatment plan. But it could be argued that since she's private pay and not using insurance, that there's, there's really no need for a diagnosis or a treatment plan. But given the way the therapy goes from this point forward, a treatment plan would have definitely been helpful to him. It would have helped guide his treatment, which didn't seem to have a clear direction, and it would have helped him defend himself later when she filed a formal complaint. Okay, so now let's go to the third session. In the third session, he wrote he moved toward her to offer her physical comfort. He wrote that he moved toward her got on the couch with her, and, and he wrote that he held her hand. He also wrote that he, hold, he held her while she wept. So uh, this implies hugging of some kind. He wrote that they talked about the quote-unquote okayness of the touch. He wrote that Maite indicated the touch was helpful for her. So um, again, he wrote in his notes, he didn't, write the word consent. He didn't, he just said that they talked about the quote unquote okayness. That's not even a word, right? So why are you using these like teenage slang in your progress notes? You're a professional, you know, but anyway, so he just says that they talked about the okayness of the touch, but he never indicated that he got her consent. So it's just something to, to keep in mind. So, uh, but so at this point in the third session, we should probably pause for a discussion regarding the ethics of touching and therapy. So uh, I'm going to get back to these session notes in her account. But before we do that, let, let's, let's get into the ethics regarding using touch and therapy. The first thing is, is that we have to establish what is the standard of care. The standard of care is a legal term. And it's defined as the customary professional practice in the community. The standard of care describes the qualities of a particular practice in psychotherapy that a reasonable or average therapist follows. Another way of putting it is the treatment, the, the, you know, the standard of care is the treatment that a reasonably prudent therapist would use in similar circumstances. And it should be noted that the standard of care does not imply perfect treatment. In other words, the standard of care may not work well all the time. So just because something didn't work well or didn't work in an ideal way, that doesn't mean it's not within the standard of care. So the standard of care understands that you know, the definition or the, the interpretation of what the standard of care is, it under, people understand that it's not always going to work out well. But the, the issue is, is that the standard of care is what a reasonable professional would do in that situation. 
And the standard of care is based on the following things. It's based on the law, including legislation and case law and licensing board regulations. So the standard of care is influenced heavily by law, case law, and licensing board. It's also influenced by the code of ethics because the you know different professions have different codes of ethics. And it's also heavily influenced by professional consensus, meaning that what other therapists have to say about the matter. So what is the standard of care regarding touch in therapy? In my experience, most therapists do not know the standard of care regarding touch, even though most therapists will actually use touch with their patients on occasions, like a brief hug or a handshake. But most therapists have never received training or supervision regarding the use of touch in therapy, or they've had very limited contact with the subject in their classes and supervision. And there's a lot of things to consider. You know, how do you use touch as a therapist? When is it harmful? And, and what are the standards of care? And, and what are the ethical codes that help guide us? Okay, so, so it doesn't surprise me that this therapist didn't know what he was doing. Uh, it did surprise me that he, he continued, that he like escalated his touching behaviors without thinking about it. But anyway, so how do we know what the standard of care is really when it comes to touch? Well, the main question is, again, what would an average therapist do who uses a similar therapeutic approach working with a similar type of client, working in a similar context and culture, what would that average therapist say about this therapist's conduct? So that's, a, that's an interesting question, right? So what, what would an average therapist say about someone else's conduct? So whenever we're trying to figure out whether or not something's in the standard of care, then, then we turn to you know, the average therapist. But you know, it's a little complicated because what is, what is the average therapist? You know, who, who defines who the average therapist is? Particularly when it comes to using touch and therapy because some people consider using touch to be completely unethical and they would never even handshake with their client. But you have other therapists that routinely will, will hold their clients while they cry. You have psychoanalytic people on one end who would, you know, perhaps never touch their clients or cognitive behavioral people who would never touch their clients. And then you have someone like Virginia Satir, who is a renowned uh, figure in family therapy, who would routinely put her hands on her clients without asking for consent. So it's hard to define what the average therapist would say. But uh, before moving forward into this discussion, we need to consider what what are the concerns about touch? You know, why why are we so careful about touch? Why do why is this something that we need to consider? When I ask this question of novice therapists, I get a lot of answers like, "Well, it's you know, it's inappropriate to touch your clients," or "It's just not okay to touch your clients," or "It's creepy." Or they'll they'll say something like that, and these answers are not sufficient. We need to have very specific reasons that reference law or ethical codes. You know, just saying it's not appropriate or it's not okay, is, it does, it's not convincing. Now, the, the conclusion might be that it's inappropriate, but you need to have professional, ethical, legal language that justifies that conclusion. So, so to be more specific, uh, what are the, you know, the actual bullet points regarding why we should be concerned is that it can harm clients. Touching a client without uh, being 
smart about it or ethical about it can result in harming the client or harming the relationship or harming the treatment somehow. Therapists may use their power as a therapist to sexually exploit their clients because clients have less power in, in the room and might not feel like they can push back. And so therapists might get their own sexual jollies out of exploiting that, that power differential. Also, another harm that may result from touch is clients may misinterpret the touch. They may think that you are trying to have sex with them or, you know, you know, something along those lines, or they might think that you're friends now, or, or if they are sex, if the client is sexually attracted to the therapist, that might spark some kind of confusion on, on the client's part. Touching a client can uh, result in leading to a sexual relationship. You know, it's, it, in, in a way, it's sort of playing with fire in some situations. And also, touching a client in a way that is unethical can make us all look like charlatans and douchebags. And that's something that we don't need. <laughs> There's enough people who thinks we're all charlatans. Already, we don't need more of that. So, so those are the reason. Those are the reasons why we, we want to be concerned with touch. Is that it can lead to harming the client, and it can lead to confusing the relationship in in a way that is unnecessary. You know, you don't. There's a lot of ways to convey empathy and caring that don't involve touching someone that are much less likely to be misinterpreted or lead to exploitation of the client. Um, on the other hand. So, so those are so those are reasons why we want to be very careful when we use touch. But on the other hand, we live in a culture that shames touching. There is a taboo regarding touching anybody. Many in my field pathologize all touching because they're not used to it, or they don't know how, they don't know how to use touch in therapy. Meaning that you know they they think that all touching can lead to sexualized behavior, which is basically just puritanical BS. You know, there's a taboo in our culture regarding people of opposite gender, particularly touching each other, because we sexualize everything. You know, if if a man and a woman hug, it must be sexual, right? Because it, it will absolutely, you know, it absolutely lead to sex. But this is ridiculous, and it could be argued that our taboo regarding touching leads to people never touching anyone, which which leads to people being deprived of the human need to be touched, which leads to people acting out in harmful ways, such as being creepy about touching, which reinforces the notion that touching is bad and the taboo is upheld. So there's a lot of weird taboo around touching, and uh, we need to be mindful of that. And we also need to be mindful that touch is important in human development at every stage of life. It communicates things that we cannot communicate in other ways. When people are suffering, what do we do? When, when your you know, daughter is suffering or when your mom or father is suffering, what do you do? Well, you reach out physically and comfort them. You don't stand on the other side of the room and like say, oh, I'm so sorry. No, you go to their side and you hug them or you hold their hand or you put your hand on their back. That's what we do as humans. That what, that's what you should do as a human. The reason why we do that is because it's helpful. When, when we're happy, when we're joyous, when we celebrate, what do we do? You know, what do we do when, when the Seahawks win the Super Bowl? We, we hug each other. We high five. We embrace each other. But somehow when it comes to therapy, many think that it's quote unquote inappropriate, even though there's a lot of empirical evidence that touch can be used effectively in therapy. So 
When we contemplate and discuss the ethics of touching and therapy, we need to discuss and consider both sides. We need to consider how it might harm the client, which is definitely something we need to consider because it can. But we also need to recognize that we live in a puritanical society that views touch as this terrible, creepy thing. And that can influence our judgment of touching, you know, using touch in therapy. For instance, if you pulled particularly, I don't know, if you pulled a bunch of, if you pulled a hundred therapists into a conference and you told a story about uh, a, a male therapist uh, hugging a female, a younger female client, I'm going to take a guess and say that a majority of the therapists in the room would consider that to be quote unquote inappropriate without knowing anything more than what I just said without knowing how the client felt about it, without knowing if there's a consent to, you know, to do that kind of thing. There's just this knee-jerk reaction of, of that it's creepy, it's inappropriate, it's, it's uh, sexist. And it can very well be all those things. And we will see in this case that it absolutely can be those things. But, but we just have a knee-jerk reaction against touch. And I don't want to perpetuate that notion in this, in this episode. So, okay, what are the ethical guidelines for therapists who regularly use touch in therapy? Because there are therapists, there are forms of therapy that use touch all the time. So what are the ethical guidelines? So what are the ethical guidelines? Well, number one is when therapists choose not to use a standard therapy. So using touch is not a standard therapy. If, if you're going to hold a, a client's hand, if you're going to hug them while they cry, it's not really the standard of therapy. And so when when therapists go outside the standard average therapy they they must clearly document their clinical rationale and demonstrate consideration of different treatment options this is the standard again when you step outside the typical form of therapy you have to justify that in your documentation you also need clear disclosures in your disclosure statement which is the form that clients review in the first session you need a signed written consent by the client. You need clear documentation that the client understands the use of touch, not just a signed form. So in other words, you need to have a conversation, perhaps a long conversation with the client, and then document that conversation. And there has to be clear consent during that conversation from the client. You need a clear treatment plan that involves the use of touch and the justification for using that touch. You need clear documentation that the use of touch is clinically appropriate given the client's history, age, gender, sexual orientation, cultural presenting problem, and so on. So you need to consider all of those factors and make sure that it's clinically appropriate. For instance, if a client has a history of being sexually abused, you need to really be buttoned up that, regarding using touch with that client because it can re-traumatize them. You need clear documentation of the touching in the session notes and, again, clear documentation of consent in the session notes. So even though you have consent in session one, if you're going to use touch in session 10, you need to, again, indicate consent and you need to, again, document that uh, what exactly happened and why. Whereas with other kinds of therapies, you don't need to do all this. You know, with, with cognitive therapy, you don't. You don't need to constantly justify it because it's well within the standard of care and there's a lot of things that we know that are established and you don't need to necessarily put in your progress notes. But if you're going to use a lot of touch and therapy, you got to document a lot. 
Um, you also need clear documentation of the therapist's competence in using touch and therapy. Like in your disclosure statement or on your website or somewhere, there needs to be indication that you've been trained. Maybe you've been certified in the use of touch. You've had uh, graduate courses on touch. You've consulted with people. You've had supervision from experts regarding touch. All that needs to be justified. And again, if you're doing cognitive therapy, you don't necessarily need all those different, you know, you can just put your degree and the normal stuff that you put on your website. But if you're going to go outside the average, you know, safe therapy zone, which, you know, using copious amounts of touching is definitely outside the normal therapy zone, then you need to demonstrate specific competence and training and education and supervision in that area. Okay, so what do the ethical codes say? Well, none of the ethical codes for the the major professions uh, talk about the use of touch in in their ethical codes uh, very much. They they don't prohibit the use of touch in therapy. So they prohibit having sex with your clients, but they don't prohibit the use of touch. Uh, for instance, APA, uh, American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. American Counseling Association, National Association of Social Workers, uh, none of they, these uh, codes, of, uh, ethical codes, provide much guidance, but they don't prohibit it. But there are other organizations that have provided ethical guidance regarding the use of touch and therapy. For instance, the ethical guidelines of the U.S. Association of Body Psychotherapy. So the U.S. Association of Body Psychotherapy has developed ethical guidelines regarding the use of touch. And it says that therapists must, as we've talked about already, get informed consent. They must consider culture. They must get consultation. They must keep clear records. And they must establish clear treatment plans for the use of touch. Incidentally, these ethical codes are highly relevant to the kinds of therapies that use a lot of touch, such as biodynamic psychotherapy, bioenergetics, biosynthesis, Hakomi, Reikian, Rubenfeld synergy, somatic experiences, experiencing, I'm guessing dance movement therapy might use a fair amount of touch, and other somatic therapies. So so that's uh, organ therapy is another one. So, so that's a summary of the ethical considerations and the standard of care regarding touch. But before getting back to Maite's story, let's get more specific regarding the use of touch in therapy. What are we talking about when we refer to touch? You know, what, what, what are we talking about here? Well, I developed the following system of levels to provide a guide regarding this. So this is my leveling system. And I have, I have four different levels with, uh, in, you know, getting progressively more intense. So level one are behaviors like handshaking, a brief hug as a greeting or a brief hug as a goodbye or high-fiving your client or maybe a light touch on the arm or the back or the shoulder. These are basic cultural rituals that are normal to uh, most many cultures in human relationships. These are often used in the average therapist's office. You know, hand, shaking your hand, shaking a client's hand or having a brief hug at the end of a client is, you know, that's, that's a pretty, I don't know the, the, you know, the, the research, it's not in front of me, I actually have reviewed the research on this, but it's not in front of me, but, but a lot of therapists engage in this sort of stuff. I, I'd have a hard time, I, I bet you a, 
80 to 90% of therapists just anecdotally would say, yeah, I handshake my clients. If they reach out their hand, I shake their hand. And if, if they want to hug, then, you know, sure, I'll hug them back. So these kinds of, uh, this level one touching is used to enhance the relationship. You know, they're used to greet a client or to help them relax or to reassure them in a very slight touching sort of way. It's, there's not a, it's very brief and it's very incidental kind of touching. I, I personally sometimes use these forms of touch. I sometimes shake a client's hand when they enter or leave the office. Or I might put my hand on a client's back as, as they leave the office, usually male. I, f- I feel much more comfortable touching my cis- cisgender male clients. Uh, we could go into reasons why that is, but that's just the way that it is. Um, and it's kind of nice to have this contact. I, it, it feels good to put a physical... Um, I don't know, to, to put a physical element into my empathy and compassion towards certain people. Now, I would say, you know, on average, if I, you know, for every 10 sessions, eh, maybe out of every 100 sessions, I'm probably involved in touching probably 5% of the time. So, and that includes handshakes and hand on shoulder and that kind of stuff. So the, in the vast majority of the clients that I see, there's, there's no touching involved. I don't, it's not necessary for me to, to, to help them. Uh, And sometimes I, I think that it is helpful and I will trust that, or sometimes clients will just ask for it, which is fine. And so, um, but on the but on but my style is is pretty limited when it comes to that stuff. I would say I might be a little on the below average on that. I would say the average therapist probably hugs their client a little bit more often, but that's just anecdotal. You know, I might high five a teenager um, and that kind of stuff. This level of touching does not require any justification in your progress notes, in my opinion. Unless the client has a sensitivity to this sort of thing, and, it, and it's fairly obvious that you should probably document that. Or if something odd comes up, like a client seems upset about a handshake or something. So this level one of touching is common and really just not concerning in most situations. Okay, level two. I'm defining this as a longer hug, you know, longer than that brief hug you do when you're saying goodbye, or holding someone's hand for any amount of time hand holding is a very intimate experience you know so it's definitely not level one or sitting closely next to a client on the couch this kind of thing i've personally never engaged in this behavior i find i can convey caring and empathy and compassion without doing these these sorts of things it's just not my style but other therapists will touch clients in these ways they might hold a client's hand while they're crying to comfort them but at this level therapists need to be careful Friends and colleagues have told me about their therapist holding their hand. So, you know, uh, you know, as clients, friends and colleagues will tell me that their own therapist will hold their hand and they're not always jazzed about it. So and, and clients don't often want to say that they're not jazzed about it. So so, you know, that this sort of this level two behavior can is definitely more risky. But again, some therapists like Virginia Satir are really good at this sort of touch and they can really pull it off. But uh, so this level two form of touching needs to be documented for sure. As soon as you get into level two stuff, you need to really have a good system of documentation and maybe even a consent to touch at that point. 
it needs to be justified. And the therapist needs to ask for consent and document that consent. Be very careful that the client isn't just consenting because they feel pressured. It's, it's very important. So, so this level two, right away, we're getting into areas that people need to be buttoned up about it. I would, I would, again, anecdotally say that most people are not buttoned up about this, mostly because clients are, are very unlikely to really you know, have a formal complaint about this sort of thing. And I would guess that most therapists are good at intuiting whether or not a client is consenting to this sort of stuff. So, but in my opinion, this is definitely, you know, if you're going to hold your client's hand for five minutes, I feel like that, that needs to be buttoned up. Okay. So that's level two. Level three behaviors are a long hug, like for several minutes during a session or holding hands for a long period of time, not just, you know, a few minutes, but maybe like 15 minutes holding someone's hand or rubbing a client's back for several minutes to try to comfort them. This sort of touch can be very therapeutic. It could be very corrective and very helpful, but it is also extremely risky. Of course, I've never engaged in this sort of behavior, although I do know some therapists who do this sort of thing, but this stuff needs to be buttoned up for sure. If you're going to hug your client for a long period of time, then, you know, not just like a, like a solid hug on the way out the door, you know, a really, you know, if, if you're going to hold a client for a while, then that definitely needs to be on the up and up. You definitely need to demonstrate competence. You definitely need a consent to touch. You definitely need to talk about it in your disclosure. You definitely need to talk about it in your treatment plan and your progress notes and, you definitely need to make sure the client is absolutely on board with it and consenting to it and all that needs to be written down and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so level four are behaviors that are never okay. It's sexual touch, violence against the client, or punishments like spanking a client or that sort of stuff. Now, you might say like, whoa, what therapist does that sort of stuff? Well, believe me, it happens. So it's worth mentioning this this fourth level as, as as things that are never ethical. So these behaviors are always problematic and should just, you know, are automatically uh, unethical. So those are my four levels. And before uh, getting out of this discussion, it should be mentioned that this whole discussion is in the context of adults and teenagers. When it comes to kids, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, it's really completely different. Therapists are much more likely to engage in touch with their kid clients. And kid clients are much more likely to engage in touch with their therapist. There's, and, and, and not only uh, intentional touching, but there's a lot of inadvertent touching between therapists and the kid clients. You know, you're on the floor you're playing, you're interacting, you're throwing a ball. You might even be playing tag in your office. I mean, these things happen. And so touching is, a, is much more natural and it's much more frequent in, the, in that situation. Uh, whenever I talk about this, I always give the following example. I had this young girl client and her mom. Uh, the girl was, I don't know, five or something. And she was having a hard time trusting me in the first number of sessions, but as time went on uh, and I really managed it well, I didn't pressure her too much. I, you know, I'd reach out to her a little bit verbally and then I'd, I'd pull away cause I didn't want to put her on the spot. And then over time uh, we got to this one session where 
she was acting like she was ignoring me, which I could tell she was acting like it. But I let her have that space. And then she slowly kind of uh, walked around the room and then slowly backed her way into me so that, you know, I'm sitting in my chair and she just slowly backed her way into like my knees. And, and she just sat there. And, and at first I was like, oh, did she randomly bump into me? And then it became clear to me that she wanted contact with me, that she, that was her way of trying to bond with me. You know, when you're a five-year-old, you don't bond with people verbally all the time. You be bond with people physically. And so that's what she did. And so that was, you know, severe, that's, you know, level two or three touching there, right? I mean, for about five minutes and the mom's in the room and, you know, the mom is looking on and saying like, oh, that's good that she's beginning to trust you. And so the girl is, you know, her back is is to my knees and it felt very warm and it felt very bonding between the two of us. And so, you know, should I have pushed her away and said that's inappropriate? <laughs> um no, you know, it was therapeutic to engage in that. Now, if I had a client that was 15 or a client that was 45 and they did the same thing, I I would not allow that. You know, I would I would I would politely say that this was the sort of thing that I don't do as a therapist and they need to sit on the other side of the room and we can talk about it and, you know, what led to that impulse. But with a five-year-old, I'm not going to do that because it's a different context. Children are a different thing. They live in a, in a different world in a lot of ways. And so touching is just more free. Now, you could make the argument that really we should be engaging in touching as adults too. And the only reason why we don't is because we sexualize everything. And, you know, you can make a good argument for that. But putting all that aside, I'm just here to tell you that when you're working with kids the 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 levels of touching it's a completely different thing because of the way you work with kids anyway so okay that's the ethical considerations when it comes to touch so let's get back to maite's story and see if the therapist was following these guidelines so let's go back to the third session the session in which the the therapist initiated touch for the first time and let's analyze his actions to see if his uh, actions were ethical and uh, within the standard of care. So again, he wrote that he held her hand. He also wrote that he held her while she was crying. He also wrote that they talked about the quote-unquote okayness of the touch, which is not an indication of consent. That just means they, they talked about whether or not it was okay, but he didn't say whether or not she indicated she consented. He also wrote that Maite indicated that the touch was helpful for her. Okay, so that's an interesting sentence there. That you know, the client says, yes, the, the touch is helpful at this point. Okay, so let's let's analyze this. Did he do the following? Number one, did he clearly document his clinical rationale for using touch? No. There's no indication in his notes for any clinical rationale. Number two did he demonstrate consideration of different treatment options? No, there's no, you know, something like this would be like, I considered using verbal compassion, but I felt that physical 
touch would be much more effective because research shows blah blah blah. blah. He there's there's <laughs> there's nothing even close to that. So he he didn't he didn't dem- demonstrate that he considered any other treatment options, which you need to do when you're when you're going outside the standard of care like this. Number three, <clears throat> did he provide clear disclosures in his disclosure statement? No, I read his disclosure statement and there's no mention of touch. In fact, he has one of the worst disclosure statements I've ever seen. For example, there are so many disclosures that are necessary uh, that it makes our disclosure statements really quite long, several pages long. But his was very large font and just barely two pages. So to you therapists out there who are acting ethically, you know that large fonted two-page disclosure statements have to be missing some of the disclosures that are necessary. But, but regardless of that, he still, there's no talk about, about touch in his disclosure statement. Number four, did he have signed written consent by the client for the touching? No. Number five, did he have clear documentation that the client understands the use of touch and that they had a you know, very detailed conversation about that? slightly there's a you know he mentions briefly that she verbally consented sort of that you know she says that they they talked about the okayness and that she indicated that it was helping but there's still no overt uh consent there um you know he he seems to be heading in the right direction in in this in this third session note but without the other components of consent it's just really not sufficient number six did he have clear documentation of the touching in his session notes, and again, uh, clear documentation of consent in his session notes. Again, slightly, you know, but really far from the mark. Number seven, did he have a clear treatment plan that involves the use of touch and a justification for using touch in his treatment plan? No, he doesn't even have a treatment plan. Number eight, did he have clear documentation that the use of touch is clinically appropriate given the client's history, age, gender, sexual orientation, culture, presenting problem, and so on? No, there's no documentation that he considered this at all, which he should have. Number nine, did he have clear documentation of the therapist's competence in the use of touch and therapy, such as providing evidence of training, certifications, education, supervision? No, there was no indication on his website or his disclosure statement that he had any training or demonstrated any competence in the use of touch and therapy. Number 10, did he have clear documentation of consultation with other clinicians? No, he only consulted with people after she terminated and after she was complaining to him. He did not, doc- he did not have any documented consultation uh, before or during the therapy about, this, about the use of, of touch. So what's his ethical score when we add up his score? Well, he sort of barely addressed two of the 10 necessary components of ethical practice. And that's just the third session because it gets much worse. So let's continue with the story. So after the first few sessions, according to her account, she said her uh, that she, she said that he escalated his sexual behavior, both verbal and physical. She said that he continued to tell her that she was very sensual. And she said that he sat on the floor in front of her and rubbed her feet. Sat on the floor in front of her and rubbed her feet. Very weird. You know, sitting next to a client and holding their hand. Yeah, I've heard therapists doing that. Sitting next to a client and holding them while they cry. Yeah, I've heard people do that too. But sitting on the floor in front of a client and rubbing their feet. And I'm not saying that this is beyond, you know, ethical 
uh, justification. Uh, but I, I would imagine that most people would, in our profession would consider that a little odd, at least. In his notes, he again wrote about the, 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 about the content of what she wanted support for, which was her recent breakup. He wrote that he told her she was beautiful. So in his notes, he actually says, I told her that she was beautiful. Okay, you know, it's not sexualized, but eh, it's maybe crossing a line. He wrote that he touched her. Over a few sessions, he wrote that he held her hand and touched her arms and legs and that he also held her. But he didn't go into detail regarding how he held her or why he held her or if she consented to holding her or if he had any clinical justification. But he does mention a number of incidents in which he he touched her. He wrote that she indicated that she had been sexually abused by a trusted older man when she was a child. So he he understands that she has a history of being abused sexually by an by older men. And this should have been a clear indication to him that he should proceed with with a lot of caution, you know, since touching could be re-traumatizing for her, duh, and since he's an older male, so double duh. All right, so after a couple months of therapy, they, they had a total of nine sessions, so, you know, sessions six through eight or something. According to her account, she said that the sexuality es- escalated even further. Regarding the verbal, sh- verbal sexuality, he continued to say that she was very sensual, very sensual. He said that she looked particularly good today once. He said that she was sexy. He said that he was crazy about her. Cra- I'm crazy about? Okay, so up until this point, it's like, I could see someone making a lame justification for why you would call why would you would say that someone was very sensual like you're trying to you know build up their self-esteem or something I, I I would consider that to be unethical myself but okay but to say that you're crazy about your client I'm crazy about you like there is no justification for saying that to a client I mean now I've talked about before in terms of having erotic countertransference and how that that's a thing and it's normal in, in some cases and so there's nothing inherently wrong with having that feeling and there might be something to say about actually self-disclosing that to your client in I think rare cases but you would never ref- you would never phrase it like I'm crazy about you without couching it in the fact that you're struggling with the fact that you shouldn't have those feelings or that um, that you're aware that, you know, it's, it could be hard. Anyway, it's just a strange thing to say. And it's, it's a, it's a massive red flag that there's something wrong with this person. And he also said that she was different from all of his other clients. So she, you know, he's like, you're different. You're, you're just imagine this. You're very sensual. You look particularly good today. You're sexy. I'm crazy about you. You're different from all my other clients. I mean, what? Jiminy crickets. Regarding the physical touching, he again sat on the floor a number of times and rubbed her legs and rubbed her uh, her feet. And he again held her on the couch. He uh, she she in her account said that in one session that she disengaged from the hug. So so she she didn't want to hug him anymore, and so she disengaged. But he hugged her again later and surrounded her with his arms and his legs. 
surrounded her with his arms and his legs after she tried to disengage from an earlier hug. Surrounded her with arms and legs. Arms and legs on the couch. (laughs) Okay. So according to his notes, he wrote that she said she was drawn to his touch. So in his notes, he's like, she, she, you know, she indicated, the client indicated that she was drawn to my touch. Okay, what, you know, that's just, uh. he wrote that he hoped that the touching was helping her. So this is a minor comment on a treatment plan, sort of. So he's writing, he's like, well, I, I'm, I told her that I hoped the touching was helping her or something like that. So this is, um, this is the first indication in his progress notes that he's even mindful of a treatment plan instead of using this as a personal dating situation. But it's far from sufficient as a treatment plan, but it's some indication regarding why he was touching her all the time because he, he wanted it to help her. But it's, just, it's the first mention of that. But again, far from the mark. So again, let's review the ethical the ethics and the standard of care. Number one. Did he clearly document his clinical rationale for using touch? Again, barely. I mean, we're talking like a 2% effort in that in that instance. It was way short of sufficient. Number two, did he demonstrate consideration of different treatment options? No. Did he provide clear disclosures in his disclosure statement? No. Did he have signed written consent for touch by the client? No. Did he have clear documentation that the client understands the use of touch? Barely. Again, you know, far from the mark. Did he have clear documentation of the touching in the session notes? And again, clear documentation of consent in the, in the session notes? Again, barely. We're talking like 5 10% effort there. Number seven, did he, have clear, did he have a clear treatment plan that involves the use of touch and clear justification for the use of touch? No. Again, there's, there's no treatment plan at all. Number eight, did he have clear documentation that the use of touch is clinically appropriate given the client's history, age, gender, sexual orientation, culture, presenting problem, and so on? No, there's no documentation that he considered this at all. Number nine, did he have clear doc- documentation of the therapist's competence in the use of touch and therapy, like that he has trained, train, that he's you know, attended trainings and education and supervision? No, there's none of that. And did he have clear documentation of consultation with other clinicians? No. So again, out of 10 of the necessary ethical steps, he barely addressed three. And of those three, he was far from the mark. Okay, so now let's talk about the final session. So she came into this final, I think it's the ninth session. She came into this final session feeling uncomfortable about all the touching and sexuality that was happening in the room. And so... She, she sat down and, and she was trying to keep her distance. I think she was, she was unsure about what to do back then. And she was trying to, through body language, communicate to him that, look, she, she doesn't want to do all the touching. And she just wants to have a normal session in which they talk. Um, and she tried to keep her distance. And she, in her head, she's like, I don't want to touch him anymore. She just wanted to have, you know, regular talk. So, even though she was giving off this clear vibe without any consent, he crossed the room, sat down on the couch with her, and hugged her again, and surrounded her body with his arms and legs. (laughs) He said that love and desire had always been intertwined in his life. He said he was tempted by her. He said that under different circumstances, he would chase her romantically or sexually, I'm not sure. 
he held her and caressed her back and her hip. So while he's holding her arms and legs, he's, he's caressing her back and he's caressing her hip. He's telling her that she's beautiful and, and that she has a sexy body. I feel like I'm reading a, like a forum, like a, like a 50 shades of gray or something. <laughs> God damn. Um, he described what he liked about her body and what he liked about her face. He said he had a hard time letting go of her. He said it would be very easy for them to break the boundaries of the therapeutic relationship. So it's clear what he's doing at this point. It, you know, session five, eh, you know, wh- what's happening here? But by this point, it is, it is abundantly clear that, even, again, speculation here, but he is grooming her to have sex with her. And, oh my God, you know. So, so all that's according to, to her account. According to his account of this final session, he wrote that they talked about uh, her recent breakup and her childhood relationships. He also wrote that they talked about the touching in the session. He said they talked about safety. He wrote that he told her that he felt joy when he touched her. So in his, in his notes, he, he actually says, when I touch you, I feel joy. <laughs> it's like, how is that? Anyway, um, he wrote that he told her that he was primarily concerned with whether or not the touch was helping her. So he's like, you know, I'm really concerned as to whether or not the touch is helping her, helping you. He wrote that she was not sure if the if if she wanted to stop the touching or not. So right here in this final session, he he is perhaps having a conversation he should have and documenting a conversation that he had, that he should have had perhaps in session one. And and at this point, he's even documenting that she's ambivalent about the touching. She's not sure. So, you know, which indicates on one hand, she, she is okay with the touching and maybe even thinks it's, it's good for her. And on the other hand, she doesn't know if it's okay for her. And even though he is indicating all this in his notes, he wrote that he held her again. And then he wrote that at, at one point she felt numb while he was holding her. So, and in, in, in his notes, he's like, so she felt numb while I was holding her. And so we stopped touching. Now he doesn't, he doesn't explain, but I would assume I'm reading between the lines that he's like, well, she felt numb. So maybe that indicates that the touching is actually re-traumatizing her, which is a big no duh. And then without any justification in his notes, he indicates that he began holding, holding her again. And again, she indicated that she was numb, which, which concerned him. But he never said that he, you know, really put it, put the brakes on the touching. You know, he was on a one-way mission, uh, you know, to do God knows what with her. And, you know, so, so it's interesting that in this final session note that he, he, he really starts to get into it uh, in terms of discussing this. And again, really hangs himself out to dry because there's no indication of consent from her. There's clear indication that she's not comfortable. There's clear indication that he is re-traumatizing her. There's clear indication that he's not paying attention to that and like pushing himself on her. And he even documents that he gets joy out of touching her, which indicates that there's a motivation and a reason as to why he would be pushing himself on her in this way. Ugh. Ugh. So this behavior is extremely concerning. She's clearly not comfortable with the touching and he does it anyway. She's showing clear signs of re-traumatization and dissociation from the touch and he continues to do it anyway. He's trying to justify the touching in his notes, 
but he never indicates that she truly consented. And it's just, you know, it's, uh, but you know, there's, there's one thing that I will commend him for is that he, he's not lying in his notes. You know, he, he could have easily lied in his notes and said that she indicated consent and it would have been hard for anyone to refute that, you know, it would have been his word against hers. And frankly, usually licensing boards will believe the therapist over the client, just in my anecdotal experience. So he could have lied in his note in his notes to save his skin. You know, he could have said, we talked about it and she clearly gave me verbal consent to the touching. But, you know, he didn't do that. He didn't lie. He just says that they, quote unquote, you know, talked about it. So I I commend him for that. I commend him for being truthful. So out of a hundred things that he did wrong, there was one thing that he did right. So congratulations to him. So that was the final session. She left the session without terminating, and when she got home, she decided to email him and terminate. She told me that she decided to terminate with him because she was 100% sure that they would have sex in the next session. She wasn't confident in her ability, I I think if I remember right, in her ability to uh, push him away, and she was sure like something was going to happen, and he was going to do something to her, like overtly sexual. And so she was just like, I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to terminate. And she was getting a lot of signals from him that he was definitely wanting to have sex with her. And I think that's clear. But she didn't think that it would be healthy for her. And so she quickly terminated, which is good for her. And it's an indication that she has healthy boundaries. So they both indicated in their accounts that there was an email exchange about her wanting to terminate. In his notes, he wrote that she emailed him and indicated she wanted to terminate treatment. And in his notes, he replied by telling her that he was sorry for misjudging how much touch uh, would be helpful for her. So in other words, she's like, I want to terminate, you know, because the touch is getting weird for me or something. And then he apologized. He's like, oh, I'm sorry for misjudging the touch. So again, I'll commend him for apologizing. So two good things and a hundred bad things, but he did apologize because some therapists in situations like this uh, will refuse to apologize when they're wrong. Also in his notes, he wrote that she indicated that she was very angry with him. In her account, she said she emailed him the termination email. And then within three minutes, he called her and asked her not to terminate. She said that he begged her to schedule a session so they could talk about termination. Yeesh. In his notes, he indicates that he consulted with three different colleagues after this point. And in his notes, he wrote that all three co- colleagues told him he should have used the consent to touch form, which is uh, a no duh on that one. So after reviewing her account and after reviewing the session notes and all that, that sort of thing, I really wanted to make sure that I understood the facts. So I asked her specifically, did she ever give consent to the touch? Because maybe it happened in session and it's just not being talked about in the notes or her account. So I said, you know, did you ever give consent to him touching you? And she said, no, she never gave verbal consent. And then I asked, did he ever ask for consent to touch her? Because again, maybe it happened, maybe he asked her and it's just not in his account or her account. So I, so I asked, did, did he ever actually ask for consent? And she said, not explicitly. 
and this is corroborated in his notes that he he never expl- there's never a statement like I explicitly asked for consent to touch in this way you know there's there's in his notes and according to her she, she he never even asked for consent really then I asked her did she sign his disclosure statement or some other form that I don't know about because because I, I you know went online found his website found his disclosure statement I thought well maybe maybe there's some other form that he has that indicates touching and and you know it's not on his website but he hands it physically to his clients and it was then that she said that she never signed a single form including a disclosure statement so she said no there there were no other forms in fact what's a disclosure statement because I never even signed it so <laughs> to you therapist out there <laughs> yeesh so even though his disclosure statement form was completely insufficient, particularly regarding his use of touch, he didn't even have her sign that one, which is yet another ethical violation. <laughs> I mean, it is just comical. You know, as I've said in other episodes about ethical violations, if a therapist is stupid in one way, they tend to be stupid in so many other ways. So it's not, it's not that they they didn't know a particular detail about the ethical codes. Instead, it's clear that they have a general lack of understanding and a general tendency to act stupidly and a general narcissism about their behavior. You know, they're like, well, it feels good to me, so I'm going to do it. Gosh darn it. And it's just like, my goodness. Okay. <sighs> so what happened after she terminated? She went to a new therapist, a female therapist, and Maite said she was a great therapist. Uh, Maite told her new therapist all about what happened with her previous therapist. She said her new therapist managed to contain her anger and disdain at him, like in a way that I'm not doing right now. (laughs) But the therapist did explain why his behavior was unethical. And Maite said that in one session, she told her therapist about her concerns about taking action against him. So she's like, well, I want to file a complaint, but you know, I, I, I don't, I'm worried that, you know, he'll have serious personal and professional trouble. And I'm worried that his livelihood and his relationship with his family will be impacted. And at that moment, her therapist said, I understand that you have those worries because you are a very caring person. If only he had done the same for you. Maite told me that that last phrase really struck her. If only he had done the same for you. This helped her to overcome her desire to protect him, and she decided to do something about it. So she researched the subject independently. She went online, and she learned that this sort of behavior is far more frequent than she had imagined. She found a group of women online that are spread out all over the world who have been sexually and emotionally abused by their male therapists. And she contacted them and has kept in touch with them over the, over the months. As she researched a topic, she found this humble little podcast called Psychology in Seattle. And she told me that she looked up episodes that pertain to her situation and she listened to those. So then she emailed me for the very first time. This is when our relationship began. And we went back and forth over email over several different emails. And I told her that his behavior was absolutely unethical And I told her that I couldn't believe a licensed clinician would behave in this way. I told her I was angry at him. And I um, 
secretly wanted to drive to his office and throttle him for what he's done. Um, you know, for some reason I've become sort of a lightning rod for these sorts of stories and people email me all the time about their therapist doing things like this and it drives me bonkers. These bad apples make us all look like charlatans. People already are skeptical of our profession, so we don't need these sorts of people giving us bad publicity. Plus, our profession is supposed to help people, not harm them. We're called to this profession because we want to make a, a positive change in the world. We want to make the world a better place, not make the world a worse place. And this guy harmed Maite, and that makes me sad. It it could have been prevented if he had just stuck within the normal standard of care, which, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with, it's not like the standard of care is this tiny little box. You know, there's a lot of things you can do. And from what she told me, it sounds like he in some ways was actually a good therapist, but he let his personal issues get in the way in a, in a big way. So, you know, I had a mixture of feelings, both just sadness and anger and shame for my profession and, compassion for her in terms of what she went through. And so after we went back and forth over email, this is a year ago, she asked me to make an episode about it. So I made a patron exclusive episode called a therapist kisses his client. I published it in April, 2016. I always have trouble titling my episodes. So looking back, it's like a therapist kisses his client. I don't know if that's such a great title, but you know, I'm just one person trying my best. <laughs> Um, and incidentally, I sent the episode to Maite and, uh, before I published it and to make sure she was okay with it and she consented. Again, I want to say, uh, if I haven't said it so already, that I commend her for being so brave and telling her story. I mean, in the middle of all this, she's like, yeah, go ahead and publish the story on, online because I want people to know about this sort of thing. And, and it's so helpful when people like this step forward. She has nothing to be ashamed of. She has a lot of things to be proud of in terms of her behavior. And he has everything to be ashamed of. <laughs> as, I, as I talk about sometimes on the, on the show, it's like, you know, it, it's a little weird for a therapist to talk about shame as a justifiable feeling. 99.999% of the time, humans, when they feel shame, it's not justified. You know, you, you say something stupid at a dinner party and then you, the next day you wake up and you just feel deep shame about it. You're in, you're a student in class and you say something that you're not proud of. And then the next day you just feel extreme shame about it. There is nothing shameful about making a mistake like that. You know, you're trying your best. We're all human. And that is nothing to be ashamed of. And that's usually what I hear people telling me uh, about. But there are some things that I will say, just as a moral person on this planet with one particular set of morals, that there are some things that you should absolutely be ashamed of. If you purposely kill someone for no reason, you should be ashamed of that. If you steal money from millions of Americans because of your own stupid greed, you should be, you should be ashamed of that. And if you're a therapist who sexually exploits one of your clients, you should be ashamed of that. There's so many other things you could have done to avoid getting in that situation. There is no book, no training, no, con no you know, supervisor, no course in graduate school that says you're supposed to envelop your clients in your legs and your arms for you know, several minutes and caress them and tell them that they're 
you know, sexually attractive and that you want to, you know, that you're sexually attracted to them. That has never been uttered in any training, in any supervision, in any consultation, in there's never. And so the fact that a, a therapist would engage in this, they are going against everything that they've been trained. They, they're going against everything that they've been told and they know better. And so uh, you should be ashamed of that in, in my, in my book. Um, so we continued to email with each other and she actually, uh, a, a big part of this that I'm not talking about, and I, and I plan on talking about it in, a, in another episode because we actually have another patron who, or I think a couple patrons who are kind of struggling for, with this, is that even though she was upset with the therapist and she didn't want to see him anymore and she, and she you know, was thinking about complaining against him, she also had some warm feelings for him and she missed him. Because there was some element of goodness in their therapeutic relationship. And that's a, that's a, you know, that's part of life. And, and you know, some listeners out there might be like, huh? Like, I don't want that to happen. But, you know, life is messy like that. Sometimes you, you, you know, certain, ex- some experiences can be both and, you know, they can be both harmful to us and good to us in some ways. And actually another patron wrote in and wrote about an even <clears throat> more extreme example in which she had warm feelings for her abuser, uh, someone who abused her for a long time. And, you know, life is complicated and our feelings are our feelings and they're real. And so a big part of what we went back and forth over email over was her struggling with her feelings of, of wanting to reach out to him actually. And, and wanting to, um, I don't know, just her, her, she, she lives in a small town and she bumps into him a lot, which is also a factor here, but she, she has a lot of feelings about that. And she felt, she felt very ashamed of those feelings. And I did my best to try to reassure her that it's totally understandable. I, you know, your feelings are your feelings. And he had a lot of qualities of a good therapist you know, if we put all the touching aside, he was clearly compassionate. Um, I'm leaving a lot of that, you know, account out. He was clearly, he clearly cared about her in, uh, in a way and it was very uh, energetic and very enthusiastic as a therapist. You know, he, there was no doubt that he wasn't enjoying talking to her and, you know, really trying to engage with her. Uh, in the particularly in the first you know four or five sessions before the touching really ramped up you know she she felt like wow i'm really getting a lot out of this and so just because the relationship ended in this way uh, and she felt good about the fact that it ended it that doesn't mean that her feelings of attachment to him just vanish you know she still had that and so uh, i'm not i'm not going into detail about that but we did go back and forth about that quite a bit Incidentally, she recently thanked me for being there for her during this difficult time in her life. She said that I was one of the three people who uh, supported her and whose support was important to her during this process. And to that, I say that I am 100% honored to be a part of her journey on this path. It's been an honor to see such a brave person stand up to the systems of power and to assert her rights, it's it's wonderful. To, I, I have to say, if I was in this situation, I'm sort of conflict avoidant, so I don't know if I would have I don't know if I would have done anything. And so I really respect her for that. Uh, 
you know, it's, it's been a true honor to see someone fight back when so many other people, you know, understandably feel powerless and do nothing. And I really hope that others will follow in her footsteps. Okay. So later, Maite hired me as a consultant on her case. She wanted consultation regarding her rights as a client. She wanted to know if she should take action against him. So this is when she sent me all the documentation of what happened, his session notes, his disclosure statement, his website, uh, her account. And uh, I looked into the prevailing literature regarding the ethics on touching and therapy. That's when I learned about all that kind of stuff. And I provided my opinion to her. By that point, she had made an official complaint to the licensing board in her state, which I thought was a very brave and healthy action. After she consulted with me, I asked if she wanted to make another podcast about this new information, because in the, in the first episode, it was just her initial emails. But now that I had his session notes and all this other stuff, I, I said, you know, do you want me to make a, a second episode? And she said, yeah, sure. So I made a second episode about this case, another patron-only episode, I think, titled A Therapist Kisses His Client Part 2. <laughs> Again, I'm not a brilliant title maker. This is back in May of 2016, a year ago. So over the past year, she's been giving me updates about the complaint process, and recently the licensing board made their decision. She sent me the documentation from the licensing board, and she sent me her account of the entire complaint process, which is, which is interesting. So, so let's review that, that phase of what happened, her complaint process over this past year. So again, she consulted with experts and found that she had three options. She could, one, file a complaint to the licensing board, this would have the power to revoke his license. Her second option was to file a complaint to his professional organization. So professional organizations are, you know, the American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological Association, and American Counseling Association, uh, American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, that kind of, that, those are the professional organizations. These uh, organizations don't have power over anyone's license, but they do have the power to alert the public and to other professionals about the allegations. And her third option was to file a civic suit, a civil, civil suit, you know, suing him. And this has the power to gain monetary damages. So she went with option one and filed a complaint with the state uh, licensing board. So this is early 2016. So she didn't file a complaint with a professional organization and she didn't engage in litigation. Uh, in a civil suit. So what does the complaint process look like? Well, she filled out an online form. She had to provide data on the duration of treatment, the reasons she sought therapy, whether she was using insurance, and all the identifying data on him, such as name, address, and license, and all that kind of stuff. She also provided a description of the facts that motivated her complaint. So about two or three weeks later, she received a letter from the board, licensing board, acknowledging receipt of her complaint. She was given a case number and a request of any, any other proof that her, you know, uh, treatment happened, such as checks or insurance paperwork, you know, just give us more documentation, any email exchange between the two of you. And then an analyst reviewed the documents to see if the allegations were worth investigating. So at this point, they're investigating whether they should investigate it. And about five months later, so five months, that takes a long time, 
She received a letter from the board informing her that the case has been deemed worth investigating and that they would have uh, to determine whether or not there was enough proof to pursue disciplinary action. So that, so that they're like, okay, we've investigated your situation and we've deemed it worthy of investigation. We don't know what, what the, you know, hearing will, you know, say, but, but we're going to now begin a formal investigation. So skipping to nine months after the complaint, she called the board asking for an update because she's like, it's been nine months since I submitted the complaint. It seems like something should happen. And they told her that the process would take a long time. They said there were many other cases that were more important than hers, incidentally. And they said that, that they would contact her if anything happened. So she's like, okay. So she, she goes back to waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for several months. And then a year after, 12 months after she uh, made the complaint, or maybe longer, maybe more like 13 or 14 months after she made the complaint in May 2017, so it was just a couple months ago, she had not heard anything from them. <laughs> so imagine that you make a complaint to the government and you know, 13 months later, there's, there's no word. So she called the board and asked for an update and they didn't return her calls. So she searched online because some of these things are public. And she learned that back in December, so five months earlier, a formal accusation had been presented to the deputy attorney general, and they had failed to inform her about this. But the accusation that she read was for three causes for dis- disciplinary action. So the, they're saying the reason why we're calling for dis- discipline is because of gross negligence, number one. Number two, intentionally or recklessly causing physical or emotional harm. And number three, sexual misconduct. The prosecutor was calling the state licensing board for a hearing to make a decision of three different issues, whether or not they should suspend or revoke his license, whether or not they should demand payment for the costs caused by the investigation, and three, whether or not uh, further action should be pursued. So she called the board asking whether the hearing had already happened because she, she she's like, did the hearing already happen? I, I have no idea. And the prosecutor never returned her calls. So she just drove to the Department of Justice and asked, you know, to talk with someone, but they turned her away, of course. And after several days, she she just guessed the prosecutor's email address. You know how you, it's like you, you know their name, and you're like, oh, I bet you, because, you know, a lot of offices have a certain email naming scheme, you know, like my email at Antioch is khonda at antioch.edu. So if you, if you know someone's name, you could take a guess as to their email address. And so she just guessed his email, her email address and, and emailed the prosecutor. And the prosecutor emailed back and informed her that a stipulated settlement had been presented to the board, and it was now up to the board to decide whether they would accept it. So in July 2017, she contacted the prosecutor again. So this is, you know, what, 16 months after the, you know, 15 months after the uh, initial complaint. The prosecutor shared the decision from the licensing board, which by then was a public document. So the licensing board, they found the therapist to be in violation, and they imposed a number of consequences, and it's a long list of consequences, so let's get into this. So they revoked his license, but they also said he could get his license back if he took and passed the uh, state licensing exam. 
So this is actually not that hard to do. So, so you know, they take away his license, but if he wants to, he could probably study for the exam over the next month or two and then pat and then take it in maybe two or three months and and pass it. And at that point, he'd get his license back. It's, not, it's actually not that hard. The test is not that hard is the point. Um, but, you know, they did take away his license for a time. He is also barred from practicing until he, you know, gets his license back, which, which I think is obvious. But the main thing that they did to him is they put him on probation. And there's a lot of different details on his probation. And the, and the probation is for seven years, <laughs> which is, you know, a fair amount of time. And uh, so, at the be- so if he if he decides to just drop out of the profession, then he doesn't have to do anything. He's just like, okay, fine, I'll never be a therapist again, and I'll never get a license. Moving on in life. But if he gets his license back, then he is on probation for seven years after that. And at that point, he has to be assessed by an independent evaluator who will determine whether he needs to practice under supervision and for how long. So in other words, some expert will evaluate him and say, you know, determine like how much supervision does this guy need? And I'm guessing that if they read this case, they'd be like, this guy needs a lot of supervision. (laughs) So uh, my guess is, is that they will require him to have weekly supervision for a while. Um, And this is a common consequence for therapists who violate their license. You know, it makes sense. Um, it, It supervision is a really effective way of monitoring someone's behavior and for of um, helping someone learn from their mistakes. Another part of his, of his probation is that he has to submit quarterly reports to the board licensing board and be interviewed by the board frequently. This is to provide further oversight of his behavior. Again, he's on probation for seven years. So that there's all, so he's going to have to submit 28 different reports to the board during that time regarding, you know, what he's doing. Um, So I like this one too, because it really holds him accountable. He also has to inform any current or potential employers about what he did and about his probation. So if he ever, you know, applies to a job or, you know, tries to get on an insurance panel or something, he has to fill out that form that says, yes, I have been found to have violated, you know, the terms of my license and here are the circumstances. You know, people need to be warned of what he's capable of. And so while he's on probation, he has to do that. If he currently has to terminate with any clients because of his license being revoked, he has to inform them about what happened. This would be particularly embarrassing. I mean, you have to tell your clients that you lost your license because you were being super creepy with another client. That would be really embarrassing. But again, it makes sense since these clients need to be informed about what this therapist is capable of so they can take action to protect themselves. During his probation, he cannot be a supervisor or an instructor of clinicians. So that's stipulated in there. He also has to submit fingerprints to the Department of Justice and to the FBI, presumably because, you know, it's a red flag that he's a sexual predator or some kind of criminal in some other way. And he has to pay a fair amount of money. He has to pay $1,300, which is the cost of the investigation by the government. I'd say that's pretty cheap, $1,300 for the government to investigate your situation. He also has to pay... Uh, for every year of his probation, he, ha- he has to pay $1,200, which is 
just kind of like a fee, you know. So, um, and he also has to pay the evaluator to evaluate whether or not he needs supervision, and he also has to pay for all the supervision fees. So the amount that this will end up being is completely dependent on how much the evaluator will require him to go to supervision. So I'm guessing the average evaluator would recommend you know one or two years of weekly supervision meetings and maybe a couple more years of monthly supervision. So that's about 100 to 150 supervision meetings spread out over three or four years, which would probably cost him about fifteen to $20,000. And um, so, so there's that. And also, he probably had to pay for a lawyer in all likelihood during this case, but I'm not sure. So all in all, he's probably paying between twenty dollars and $40,000 total spread out over the span of four years if he wants to practice again. Now, it's possible possible that he'll just throw in the towel and change careers, and I'm sure he's thought about that, but we'll see what he does. His website is still up, incidentally, so maybe he's maybe that's an indication that he's deciding to stick it out. So I asked Maite how she felt about the decision. You know, uh, she's worked hard to get here. It's been many months, and she has worked really hard to um, get the licensing board to do something. And then all of a sudden, boom, here's the decision. How does she feel about it? Well, she said that she's, quote unquote, mostly satisfied with the decision. She also said that, that the decision definitely provided a sense of closure for her, which I'm glad. She said that she is glad he will see the consequences of his actions, which was really the only thing she wanted. She, she just wanted him to know that he did something wrong and that there are consequences for doing something wrong. She didn't want him to just, you know, get off scot-free. She also said she wished the government communicated more effectively with her, and I agree with her. I mean, to me, it seems as though the government wasn't planning on communicating with her at all. Uh, At every turn, they treated her like she was a pest, which really pisses me off. The government is supposed to be there for us, the people, you know, the people who pay their their salaries through tax dollars, you know, it, it, they should at least provide a common courtesy of at least occasional communication. It's completely unacceptable that Maite had to hound them for information. Um, you know, she's the victim of a license violation. The, the government licensed this person and this person harmed her and the government needs to be accountable for that because they licensed this person. And, you know, she deserves to be at least informed of the process. But overall, she says that she's satisfied with the complaint process. And she said that justice was indeed served. And she also says that she had an enhanced trust of the system, which I find to be interesting. Uh, She also said that she learned a lot. It was therapeutic for her. She learned about men, you know, about how men have a sense of entitlement over women's bodies and she also learned that women have a tendency to not fight against it, even though it makes them uncomfortable. She said that this realization has, res- has resulted in her drawing more boundaries in people in, in her current life. For example, the other day, she said she was at a gathering where this guy got really close to her and he rubbed her arm. And she didn't want that to happen. She didn't want him close to her and she didn't want him to rub her. And she felt something in her stomach and she noticed, you know, her feelings and she took action. She asserted herself and pushed him away from her, which is just 
awesome. <laughs> Good for her. She said that before this whole ordeal, she might not have done that. She would have been less aware of her feelings and she would have been much less likely to push him away and draw a boundary. So I'm really glad that she's asserting her rights in this way. You know, this, this makes me really happy. So let's review what happened. Let's conclude here. So in the beginning, she said she went to therapy because she wanted to talk about her career and she wanted to talk about a difficult breakup. Over the span of just nine sessions, the therapist engaged in increasingly you know, intense sexual behavior with the client. The verbal behavior started with things like saying that she was very sensual and progressed to him saying that she had a very sexy body and that he was very tempted to have sex with her, essentially, is what he was saying. The physical behavior started initially with things like holding her hand, but then progressed to him kissing her legs and surrounding her body with his arms and his legs and caressing her hip. Again, this is over nine sessions. The client felt increasingly uncomfortable with his sexualized behavior, and she indicated as much. He, he ignored her discomfort and her obvious signs of re-traumatization, and continue to, to engage in his, you know, sexual invasion of her and enveloped her with his body, uh, even though she was clearly not consenting and clearly uncomfortable. He was acting unethically and outside of the competency, uh, outside of his competency, and he did not follow the standard of care. Let's review. Number one, he didn't clearly document his clinical rationale for using touch. Number two, he didn't demonstrate consideration of different treatment options. Number three, he didn't provide clear disclosures in his disclosure statement. Number four, he didn't even give her the disclosure statement. <laughs> Number five, he didn't have her sign a written consent to use touch and therapy or a consent to touch form. Number six, he didn't have clear documentation that the client understood the use of touch and therapy. Number seven, he didn't have clear documentation of the touching in the, in the progress notes. He did document it kind of, but he didn't, he didn't document all of it. And it should have been documented, especially the enveloping of the body with the legs. He didn't write about that. Number eight, he didn't have clear documentation of consent to the, to the touching in his session notes. So even though you might have a form that, you know, they sign, you need to have a conversation and actually document that. Um, number nine, he didn't have clear, he didn't have a clear treatment plan that involved the use of touch. Number 10, he didn't have a clear justification for using touch in the treatment plan. <clears throat> so not only <clears throat> did he not mention the use of touch in treatment because he didn't have a treatment plan, but he didn't have justification. Number 11, he didn't have a treatment plan. <laughs> number 12, he didn't have clear documentation that the use of touch was clinically appropriate given the client's history, age, gender, sexual orientation, culture, presenting problem, and so on. Number 13, he didn't have clear documentation of the therapist's competence in using touch and therapy, such as documented trainings or certifications or supervision. And number 14, he didn't have clear documentation of consultation with other clinicians prior to termination. So there's all that. And then after all this happened, um, you know, she terminated and Maite researched a topic and reached out for help. She consulted with experts. She filed a formal complaint with the licensing board in her state. The government took action against the therapist. The government also failed to communicate effectively with Maite, even though she, you know, deserved timely communication. The complaint process took over a year, but in the end, they found him to be in violation and imposed a number of consequences 
that I believe to be probably sufficient, including one, revoking his license. Two, he can get his license back if he takes the exam, which he could probably do in a few months. Number three, he was put on seven years probation. Number four, he has to be assessed by an independent evaluator who will determine whether or not he uh, needs to be in supervision and for how long, which I'm guessing will probably mean about 100, 100 to 150 supervision meetings over the next few years. Number five, he has to submit quarterly reports to the board and be interviewed by members of the board frequently over the seven-year period. Number six, he has to inform relevant employers and clients about what he did, about um, you know what he did, and about his probation. Number seven, during his probation over the seven years, he can't be a supervisor or an instructor of clinicians. Number eight, he has to submit fingerprints to the Department of Justice and the FBI. And number nine, he has to pay uh, estimated between twenty and forty thousand dollars. So that's that's what his consequences were, which you know I think is is probably sufficient on the licensing end. Now she could she could file a civil suit and sue him for you know another fifty to a hundred grand or something, which could also happen. Maite said that she is satisfied with the decision and that the decision provided a sense of closure. She believes that justice was served, and she just wanted him to see the consequences for his actions. And through all this, Maite has learned that she is entitled to her body, and she is entitled to push back when men invade her space, and that makes me very happy. So I want to close with a discussion about perhaps about speculating why he did all this stuff. You know, why did he engage in this weird behavior? Well, it's completely unknown to me, and I can only speculate. You know, was he lonely? Is he a sexual predator? Uh, maybe he's going through something difficult in his personal life. I don't know. I would suspect that it, one factor is that he's at least somewhat narcissistic. There's really no other explanation for this sort of behavior. In what world is it okay to kiss a client's legs? In what world is it okay to wrap a client in your arms and legs for several minutes at a time while you tell her how sexually attractive she is and how much you want to have sex with her? In what world is that okay? You know, he must have very elaborate, uh, you know, defenses in his, in his personality that protect him from the notion that, you know, some of his impulses are not worth pursuing. In other words narcissism, right? When you're narcissistic, you believe everything that occurs to you is golden and wonderful. You don't have a sense that some of your notions aren't exactly great. And so I, I, I would, I would call, I, I, so again, I don't know him and complete speculation, but I would say anyone who engages in this sort of behavior and has this sort of profile is, is likely to at least be partially narcissistic, and meaning that they have a grandiose sense of themselves. They believe that uh, they're sort of immune to feedback or immune to... Uh, when, when one of them, so narcissism is a very complicated thing, and, and at one point I'm really going to do a deep dive on narcissism, but one, one of the elements of narcissism is that you just you just really have a, a tremendous amount of self-esteem regarding your own behaviors. And along those lines, self-disclosure, I'm a little narcissistic in that 
when I started this podcast, I had no reason to believe that I could do it. I had no reason to believe that it would be any good. I had no reason to believe that I had any any reason to, you know, impose myself on the internet, right? Like, but, and Birdo is similar to this, to me in this way too. And and if I might say, so is Lita and maybe Mandy. But the point is, is that it, I would guess that most podcasters have a little bit, have a streak of narcissism in that it's like, well, I have thoughts and so I'm going to make people listen to them. <laughs> you know, that, that's a, that's a, that's a narcissistic notion. Now, am I, is it a terrible narcissism? You know, am I abusing other people in this way? No, you know, it's just, it, it can get me into trouble. Actually, that this belief that I can pull things off is actually, uh, has gotten me into trouble in my life. Uh, When I was in, in high school, I ran for student office, you know, just because I thought it'd be funny. And my, I, I had this really stupid idea for a speech. It was a gag, a comedy gag, and it was not funny, and it was completely stupid, and it was completely embarrassing. And even though that was 30 years ago, I can remember it like it was yesterday. And right after that, I thought, Kirk, all of your thoughts are not golden. <laughs> now, I quickly probably forgot that, you know, that lesson. But the point is, is that as a therapist, if you're, you know, if you have a notion like, oh, I'm going to kiss her on the legs, with, you know, to, to be a doctoral level uh, mental health clinician and to have that, you know, I understand having that notion. You know, I don't, I don't really understand, but you know, I could understand how someone might have that notion. Like, huh, I wonder if it would help if I caressed her feet and kissed her legs. Okay, fine. You have that weird impulse. What I don't understand is how at that point you don't have something in your brain that says, okay, wait a second. I know you want to kiss her legs, but maybe it's not a good idea. Well, one of the reasons why people will move forward with those behaviors is because they're narcissistic. They're just like, well, of course, all my notions are good. You know, I'm a good person. I, I've never made a mistake. You know, that, that kind of thinking. And so, again, pure speculation. No idea who he is. Um, so, uh, but so in conclusion, what I'll say is that in my experience, when a therapist acts in, a, in this way, and this happens, you know, a fair amount of time, it's usually a confluence of two different issues. One is this either minor or major narcissistic streak that they have that, that they can do no wrong. And then the second issue is that they're having difficulties in their personal lives. It's well documented that a lot of these sexual uh, unethical behaviors occur when a therapist is going through a divorce or is having trouble in their dating life or uh, you know someone died in their family or something and so it it destabilizes the therapist and makes them take action that they wouldn't do normally and so i would i, I would suspect that that's a circumstance in his life i don't know and in that way, I feel bad for him. It doesn't justify his behavior. I mean, I, I've had bad things happen to me in my life, and this sort of thing has never even occurred to me. And if it did, I would quickly get rid of that notion in my head and be like, that's ridiculous. So anyway. All right. So what have we learned as therapists? Well, number one, we learned that we need to know our ethical codes and we need to know the standard of care. Number two, don't use touch unless it's minor touch like handshakes or unless you are competent and acting within the standard of care. 
Number three, have sufficient documentation, including a good treatment plan and good progress notes. Number four, make sure your disclosure statement is sufficient and make sure you explain to your clients all the necessary disclosures and make sure you document that conversation. Number five, have a system to manage your countertransference. Number six, consult frequently. This could have been avoided if he just if he would have consulted with one person at session four. This whole thing could have been avoided. Number seven, avoid harming your clients. Please stop it. Number eight, know that your clients have the power to complain and sue you. <laughs> so you, you should be, that's the other, that's the other thing that that it just indicates narcissism is or psychopathy or something in this guy is the fact that he wasn't afraid and he was just he was just forging ahead without any fear of what was obviously a risk of losing his license, you know? Um, the fact that he was clearly documenting what was happening, I mean, that he was even mentioning some of the things that was happening in his notes. He was just like, yep, I'm admitting to all this stuff. And it's like, don't you realize that people can sue you and you can lose your license? It's like, come on. Um, well, so that's what we've learned as therapists. But what have we learned as clients? Well, number one, we've learned that we have rights. Clients have rights. Number two, there are systems of justice that can help us when we are wronged. As patron Maite has learned and I have learned is that there are governmental systems that actually can help us and can actually get justice for us. Number three, if we feel uncomfortable about our therapist's behavior, it might help to consult with an outside expert. And by all means, assert your boundaries. If, if you don't like something, if, if you're getting touched in a way you don't want to be touched, just say, I don't like this. Stop it. I don't want you to do this. I, I'd, I'd rather not do this right now. Can we just talk? You know, just feel free to assert yourself in that way because you deserve that, you know, that you have, you have the right to say that. And therapists should... And therapists have the responsibility and the charge to listen to that and respond well to that. Okay, so in conclusion, I want to highly commend Maite for providing us with her story. I've learned a lot from her story, and I hope you have too. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. <laughs>